Well, it is slightly after eight, so I'm gonna go ahead and get started. Um, maybe some other people will roll in after breakfast, but um, well, welcome to day two of Harbor. Hope you're enjoying it, and we have a little overcast day today, a little rain, very unusual for this time of year, but not unusual for this year. We've had a lot of rain, uh, so I'm not that surprised. Uh, my name is Kindy DeLong, and I'm a professor of religion here focusing on New Testament. And so this is the second part of a two-part class, although if you weren't here, you know, you obviously can be here without having gone to the other one. Um, on the, it's looking at God's love and the concept of love in the Old Testament and New Testament, so we're in the second part, which is the New Testament. So uh, Rick Mars, who's sitting back there, did the class yesterday on, um, on the Old Testament, and we're going to be looking today at the New Testament. Uh, so I want to start by actually just thinking about the way that we use the word love. Because in our English language, this is a very flexible word. You use it for a lot of different things. So like, here's a little icon for our city, which I do love LA. <laughs> I like LA a lot. Um, and, I, and I'm okay saying I love LA, but that's very different than saying I love something else, right? So this is more that kind of affection that we have for um, the, the things around us, uh, the things that we're sort of thrown into the middle of, you know, kind of a light affection. Um, and we see we see the word love used for that. I'm going to show some other images from kind of pop culture. Um, of course, another kind of love is is romantic love, and this is the one that we really see a lot, of course, in our culture. Um, so this ad says, "Choose to captivate, choose love." Um, so, uh, so that's obviously something that's a big part of our world. And then we really value the love of family. You know, I mean, this this nice picture of a father. And a daughter, of course, here being used for marketing purposes, that feeling that we have for family, uh, you can get it at, apparently by going to Family Dollar and picking up some supplies. Um, but we use the, the word love for that. And similarly, um, friendship. So I haven't seen this movie uh, called I Love You Man, but apparently it's a guy who's getting married and he doesn't have any close friends to have groomsmen. <laughs> so he goes on a quest for friends. Um, but yes, so we use the word love for friendship as well. Uh, and so C.S. Lewis very famously wrote a book called The Four Loves, I don't know if you've heard about this, where he, he looks at these different uh, kinds of ways that we use the word love in English, but points out that in Greek there are different words for these things. So this is philia, this love for family and friends. This is the love that you choose, you know, your found family, the family members that you choose to invest in, um, the, the love that you really, really invest in, um, where this is also philia, right? Like that, that uh, the, our family, our children, our spouse, the people that are closest to us in our family, but this is eros, um, the romantic love. And this is storge, which is um, that affection, right? So they have more precise words. And so then what he famously points out <laughs> And uh, is that there is a word in the New Testament that is um, different than these. Not that these other loves are bad or wrong, but just that you know this, this love means um, the, the word agape means that we are we are choosing to act in the best interests of other people, and um, and, and it's a different way of thinking about love. 
So Rick uh, mentioned yesterday, he, he spoke, to, spoke about chesed, which is God's covenantal love in the Old Testament. He said, if you know one Hebrew word, you might know chesed. Well, if you know one Greek word, it's probably agape. This has become very popular. It shows up on t-shirts and jewelry and, and everything like that. So, But that's what we're going to be talking about today is um, agape in the New Testament. And we'll be looking at a couple of other concepts and words too, but primarily agape. Um, so to start, I want to point out that the word agape appears in the New Testament in different forms, like noun, adjective, um, verb, and uh, I want to connect it to what Rick was talking about yesterday. So Rick spoke about covenant love, chesed, and, um, and I want to think about language a little bit here, because in the Old Testament, obviously it's written in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic, but mostly in Hebrew. Then Jesus is speaking, probably Aramaic, you know, when he's teaching. Um, and then the New Testament is written in Greek. So there's a transition in language there. Um, and all, another thing that's going on is that by, this, by the time of Jesus, the Jews had been living in the Greek world for quite a while, and they had translated their own scriptures into Greek. So when they get to the concept of chesed, they have to decide, what Greek word am I going to use to translate this? Uh, and in many cases, it's um, agape, or one form of agape. Not in every case, though. There's some flexibility there. Also mercy sometimes, and a few other words. But um, agape often translates this word chesed. Um, and so I also want to uh, think about another word, another word in the Old Testament, ahav, which uh, describes, the, the word means feelings of love, um, feelings of loyalty and love, right? And this word often, not always, it can refer to God's covenantal love in some cases, but most often it refers to the love that we humans give back to God, right? Mm -hmm. So, but what happens in the translation process is that in many cases, agape is used for both. Both God's love for us and our love for God. So in that translation process, they start to get Kind of mer not that they were really separate, they were very connected in, he in the Hebrew Bible anyway, but they get merged together with the same word in many cases uh, by the time of Jesus, so that you could use the word agape for that. But I also will mention that um, there are other Greek concepts floating around, because of course the Greeks are also thinking about love and relationship and mercy and things like that. And so Jews are not only translating their, their scriptures, but they're also trying to put their concepts into terms that their Greek friends and Greek associates can understand. Just the same way that we would if we were trying to, we were in another culture and we were trying to explain our, our faith in Jesus in another culture, we might use some of their concepts to try and explain it. And so concepts that are very, um, uh, that appear in this kind of Jewish-Greek dialogue are things like mercy and compassion and friendship. So as we go through the New Testament, we'll see some of those come out in the passages that we're going to look at. Okay, so um, I wanted to do an overview of agape in the New Testament. And so I'm going to put this slide back up again, but this time with numbers. <laughs> so the, the concept in these three terms appears 319 times. And so Mike Cope asked me to do this, and he asked Rick, and I said, sure. And then I started thinking, I was like, oh, 45 minutes, <laughs> 319 verses. So obviously, I'm going to have to be pretty selective, um, and I may not even get through everything that I plan to get through. 
Uh, so this is a list of the basic sections in the New Testament. Uh, it's not easy. I, I pulled them out based on how often um, agape appears. Uh, so you, and it's ranked. So, so first, second, third John has the most lang agape language. Um, Paul's letters, if you put them all together, is second most in terms of percentage. I'm not counting numbers. I'm counting percentage or emphasis, right? So Philemon is really high because it's really short, and agape <laughs> appears four times, right? So it's emphasis. Uh, first Peter and James also have a lot. The Gospel of John is very famous for, uh, for love. Some love passages there are very famous. Hebrews, and then you can see uh, what are called the synoptic gospels here. Um, Luke, Mark, and Matthew are down towards the bottom. Acts, not hardly any at all. The concept is there, but not the word agape, which is interesting. So today, uh, I have to be selective. So what I want to do today is I'm going to look at the synoptic gospels, then Paul's letters, and then what are called the Johannine writings, or that's the Gospel of John plus a letter of John that we'll look at. And I will just mention that I want to, I'm starting with the synoptics, even though they're way down here, because they have some foundational concepts that I think are helpful as then we get into Paul and the Johannine letters. So that's why I'm starting with the synoptics, um, and we'll, we'll kind of work our way sort of up the chart in, in a sense. Okay, so the synoptic gospels. Um, I just want to define the word synoptic just in case this is new to anyone. The word means to look alongside, to look with, and it encapsulates the idea that Mark, Matthew, and Luke are very similar, but they have differences. So you can put them in like columns <laughs> and look alongside and see, see the differences. So it, that's why they're called the Synoptic Gospels. So just a definition there. All right, so how does God's love appear in the Synoptic Gospels? Now, when I started looking at this, I, I was a little surprised because I guess I kind of intuitively knew this from reading the Synoptics, but I hadn't really, it wasn't really explicit to me. Um, but God's, God's agape, God's love with the word agape, is very specific in the Synoptic Gospels. It only applies to Jesus. It's really interesting. And it's through this word, beloved. So in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is God's beloved son. So you probably know these passages, right? God's, you know, baptism and several other places. Jesus is God's beloved son. But the word agape, God loving, never is used for any other humans besides Jesus. And the Synoptic Gospels, very interesting. But the idea of God's care for humanity certainly is in the Synoptic Gospels, just in different language, if that makes sense. So uh, I want to look at that a little bit. So what we see in the Synoptic Gospels is God's compassion and mercy. So different language, but as I mentioned, compassion and mercy in all of the translation and discussion about God's love is very closely related. And also, even in the Old Testament itself, there are a lot of passages where you have God's love in parallel with God's compassion or God's mercy. So the concepts are very close, even though the word agape is not being used. This is particularly true in the Gospel of Luke. So you can see all of these passages at the top here are from the Gospel of Luke. So at the very beginning, when uh, you have like all of the announcements coming to Mary and Zechariah, you get this language of that God is breaking into history and remembering God's covenant, so here's that, if you're thinking about chesed, you know, the word's not there, but the, the idea of the covenant is there, and bringing mercy to people. 
Um, the compassionate mercy of, of God is dawning in the person of Jesus, in the birth of Jesus. Um, and then you see it a bit later in the, the prodigal son. So the story of the prodigal son, the father, and Rick mentioned this last time, the father runs out and embraces the son, and the text says that he is showing compassion. So if you understand that father, and you can interpret this parable, you know, parables different ways, but this one seems pretty straightforward that the father is, uh, you know, representing God. So this would be a picture of God showing compassion on a wayward, on a wayward son. Another way that we see this idea of compassion and mercy of God is through Jesus. So Jesus, of course, is God's Messiah and Savior, and so is representing God's care for the people. And so many times, uh, in all, you see in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, uh, you see Jesus having compassion on people. And this is often in healing stories. If you remember this, like someone will come to Jesus and uh, be seeking healing or some other kind of help, and it'll say that Jesus has compassion. So that's that same word that's kind of a, a word that's describing God in the Old Testament as one who will have compassion on people. Um, so that's the way that we see God's love in the Synoptic Gospels. But the Synoptic Gospels, if you think of agape, are more well-known for our love. So how we love God and how we love others. And even though this class is on God's love in the New Testament, I think it's important to just at least look at how our love, how Jesus speaks about our love, because ultimately in Paul and John, this is going to all get woven together. <laughs> so I think it's worth looking at that in the synoptics. Are you with me? Are we, okay, tracking? Okay. So when we get to the synoptics, I want, because we're going to look at the pa passage and how it appears three different times in the synoptics, and we're going to see differences. Um, so I want to offer a metaphor of a prism. So you know a prism, the way this works is light enters it and slows down, and it goes through at different speeds. So this light that we see all blended together gets separated into different colors, and that's why a prism creates a rainbow. So I, I like to think of the Synoptic Gospels as a prism in a sense, or as having, having created a rainbow, as being a prism that creates a rainbow, if that makes sense. So, um, so you have the light of revelation in Jesus, who is here and comes and lives and does all the things, and teaches and does all the things he does and dies and is resurrected. That light of revelation uh, gets uh, refracted through the experiences of his disciples, through the communities that they are ministering to, and, um, and through their remembrances. And then that light gets spread out, so you have different colors. So you have a different color in Matthew, a different color in Mark, a different color in Luke. So that's the metaphor I'm working with as we're looking at these differences. So what I want to look at is the greatest command, the, 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 what has been called the greatest commandment passages the first, to begin, which you're probably familiar with because they are very famous. <laughs> um, but the idea here is that a Pharisee, in this case, um, who's described, we'll start with Matthew, who's described as a lawyer, comes to Jesus, notice to test him, and asks who is, uh, which commandment is the greatest. And Jesus then quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, um, and with, uh, sorry, with, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So I want to just look at some of these, draw out some of these things here. Um, so first of all, um, notice that the context here is very contentious. So this comes in a series of disputes between Jesus and religious leaders, and it says he's kind of already bested the Sadducees, and now the Pharisees are going to try, right? So it's a very contentious kind of setting for this story in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, he asks, what is the greatest? I'll just point that out because it's a little different um, in, the other, in the other stories. Um, and then notice that Jesus keeps these very separate. He gives this, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, says it's the first commandment, and then he adds, so he answers this question with the first command, but then he adds, there's another one that's important too, so don't forget this, right? Like, the second is this one, and then notice he characterizes them as two commandments, right? And then if you take those two commandments, he says, this, on this hangs all the law and the prophets. So you can use these two commandments in, as you're thinking about uh, how to live out God's ethical laws, you know, the laws of, of Torah. There are 613 of them. He's making the case that all of this can um, can be interpreted through a lens, I guess, would be one way of putting it, of these, these two commands. So, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and, and I will say, this is not new teaching. So, don't think of this as Jesus. Everyone's like, whoa, we've never heard this before. <laughs> right? like, um, actually, uh, it was very common in, in this time to, to think of piety towards God and righteousness towards or justice towards other people as comprising what the heart of the law is. Um, now, there's only a few places, actually just a couple of texts that were written after the time of the, New Testament, of the Old Testament, where the phrase love for neighbor or, or this idea of where, where love is used for that, but that is there. But as far as we know, the, the distinction, in terms of the texts that have survived, the distinction here is that Jesus is actually quoting the whole passage, right? And putting, putting these, very specifically putting the Deuteronomy and the Leviticus together and bringing that together and saying, on this hangs all of them. So that's a little distinctive. But it's not super surprising. It's like we could imagine that this guy would say, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I'm, on, I'm on board with this, right? Um, so what Matthew is doing here, one of the things that Matthew, and for his audience it seems, is important is to really show Jesus as the um, authoritative teacher of Torah, right? And so this is a pretty straightforward passage to say, like, when we're thinking about how we interpret, it's kind of a hermeneutical sort of story, right? When we're thinking about how we interpret what God has told us to do, you know, what principles do we use? These are the two. Let's look at it in Mark. Um, so a couple of differences here, uh, they're very minor, that are inconsequential, really, but it's a scribe, and um, the context is not quite as contentious because he comes to ask because he hears that Jesus has been answering well. So maybe in, in you know, we could think of, of in this version of the story, not as, you know, not as contentious. Also notice it doesn't say he's going to test him, so that's less contentious. And he asked which commandment is the first of all, whether the greatest, by minor difference, we don't need to think about that. But this one is interesting. So Jesus answers 
this is the same right here. But he, but he includes in this version of the story um, the beginning of the famous Shema of, of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Um, and so if you think about the difference in audience, we don't know exactly, but many people think the audience of Mark is more leaning towards Gentiles than the audience of Matthew. Um, for Matthew, it's a given for his audience that the Lord is one and that we owe our exclusive allegiance to God, right? So when, when, when Jesus says in Matthew, love the Lord your God with all your heart, they get that, right? But in the Gentile context, I can love Zeus, and the next day I can love, <laughs> you, know, you know, Hermes or whatever, right? So, um, so in the Gentile context, emphasizing that, that, that this love is exclusive for the God of Israel, it might be important. Right? So it's just a little different color as the light goes through the prison um, for Gentiles, perhaps, if that theory is right. Um, and so then the second commandment is the same. But notice another thing um, is that these are more merged together. So you don't have one, then two. You do have first, second, but then he says there is no other commandment greater than these, almost as, almost as if they're the same commandment. Not quite, but almost. And, and then another interesting difference is we don't get to hear what the scribe says in Matthew, but we do get to hear it in Mark. So the story goes on, and the scribe says, good answer, Jesus. <laughs> like, I agree with you. Um, good job. <laughs> and notice he even emphasizes this idea of God being one, right? Like, the, uh, you know, an uh, exclusive. No other besides him. He interprets that a little bit more even than what Jesus has offered. And then notice how he really merges these together, to love God and to love one's neighbor as oneself, right? So kind of bringing those together. Um, and then uh, two other things. This is much more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe actually moves to saying not just uh, that this is how we interpret, this is how we read, this is our, our hermeneutic, right? But um, what, what's most important for how we live? You know, not to say that burnt offerings and sacrifices aren't important, they are, but the, the ethical component of the law is far more important. That's what, that's what he's saying. Now again, if you think about this in the context of Gentiles, they have followed Jesus and are not converting to Judaism, so would not be engaging in that kind of cultic aspect of the law, um, particularly if the temple has been destroyed, but <laughs> depends on when all, of, when all of this was written. So, but in any case, if this is written for Gentiles, um, th that we're moving from not just hermeneutics, but then like, um, how, how, does the, how does the law apply to everyone? Like how, how might it apply to everyone? And so love becomes this principle that allows everyone or empowers everyone to live out the, the, the law um, without becoming Jewish. Does that make sense? Um, and, and so then Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is being defined here as something that is embracing the people who love God and who love their neighbor, um, uh, without necessarily defining it in this way. Make sense? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, let's go to Luke. So in Luke, um, again, now we're back to testing, <laughs> um, although it's not as a con as contentious setting in Luke as it is in Matthew. But notice the question is a little different. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, so in a way, it's, it's sort of almost picking up in a, in a way from this, the ending here, the kingdom of God, you know, it, so what, what does this look like, right? Like, if, if I need to love God and love my neighbor, you know, what, you know, we're not there yet, but he's, he's phrasing a question that will get us there. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And um, notice that then the roles are flipped. So uh, Jesus asks him, how do you read? the scripture, right? Like, what do you see in the law, and how do you read it? So there's still a hermeneutical kind of angle here, like we see in Matthew, um, but, because um, actually it says here, I would need to point out what do you read there? In, in Greek it actually says, how do you read it? So the NRSV has what do you read here, but the NI, which is what I'm using, but the NIV says, how do you read it, which I think is closer to the Greek, right? So it's not just knowing the law, but interpreting the law and understanding what it means. Now, the guy is going to answer, not Jesus, <laughs> but the guy is usually, so he's going to quote again the same two, two things, uh, but notice now they're completely combined, just like in the previous one. And Jesus says to him, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> You've given the right answer. It's very interesting. Uh, just a different color uh, on this story. Um, but wanting to justify himself, he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then this leads into the famous parable of the Good, of the good Samaritan, right? So now the question is not just what are the two greatest commandments, but how do we live those out? And in particular, you know, maybe in Mark, it's like how do we live out this one, right? Like we don't need, it, you know, this is more important than uh, the sacrifices. But in Luke, it's like how do I live this out to my neighbor? Right? Like, who, who do I give this out to, right, is the question. And so you get the famous story of the Good Samaritan, which I know you're familiar with, so I'm not going to rehash that story. But I am going to say that what this story does is it flips our perspective, because the guy is asking, who is my neighbor? And Jesus ends up saying, who was a neighbor to the man who fell on the ground, who, the man who was praying to the robbers, right? So he's flipping our perspective. The guy is asking the perspective of the one who's walking down the side of the road. Jesus is saying, what's your perspective when this is your image? You're lying on the side of the road, right? You're lying there. Then you, are you going to answer who is my neighbor differently than if you're the one who is giving the help, right? So when you're the person lying on the road, you don't care. <laughs> boundaries, the boundaries that we put up, around ourselves to say who's my neighbor and who's not my neighbor start to dissolve, right? So, um, so that's what's going on here. So, so there is a kind of boundary breaking that happens in Luke's version of the story. Um, the Luke's version, so of the three, if we put these together, we have, we have love at the center of how we read God's word. Right? We have love at the center of determining what God uh, is what's most important in our relationship with God. That's, that's uh, Mark. And we have love at the center of determining who we are in community with. And that's completely unbounded, right? In 
So just different colors, but I think if you put them back all together, it enriches our understanding of what it means to love God and love our neighbor. Okay, so I want to do one last quick thing in the synoptics, and then we're going to go to Paul and John. So there's another passage just in Matthew and Luke, or another uh, sort of story, teaching in Matthew and Luke um, that has to do with love. And what I've called out here are the kind of pieces of this that Matthew and Luke share. So because there's some differences too, some different colors, but I've now called out what they share. So the way this passage goes in Matthew, so the numbers here are the, the order of the ideas. So notice they're different order in Luke. So uh, in, this comes at the end of the six antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. If you don't know that word, that just means like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, there's six of them. Um, so this is the last one. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. You're going to do this to be children of God. Because God blesses everyone. And it's a little different in Matthew and Luke. Like, uh, in, in Matthew, it's God sends rain upon the just and the unjust. In Luke, it says God is kind to everyone. But it's the same idea. Um, God loves every, blesses everyone. And by the way, it's nothing special to love those who love you. Everyone does that. <laughs> right? So, be like your father. Um, Luke's is similar. It's just that he starts here. It's nothing special then God blesses, then he has the example, then he says, love your enemies, be children of God, and then at the end he says, love your so, um, <clears throat> so the order's different, and some of the details are different, but do you see the idea here? This is why I said I wanted to look at the synoptics first, is that the reason we love our neighbor, who includes our enemy, is that that's what God does, right? So, um, so, we, so it's kind of like the Good Samaritan parable, right? Except that it's, it, you know, that it's, it's deepening our understanding. It's the reason that those boundaries are so wide on who is my neighbor is because God's boundaries are so wide. In fact, there are none when it comes to humanity, right? Um, so there is, um, so these, these are some of the differences, the colors, which I'm not going to go into because we don't have uh, enough time. But I do want to look at this one down here. Matthew says, uh, in Matthew, Jesus says, be perfect as your father is perfect. In Luke, be merciful. Right? So the perfection of God that we're talking about is the practice of mercy. Is God's unbounded. We can't be perfect like God in every way. Right? But he's saying, but, but Jesus is saying, you can imitate God's unbounded mercy. And so if you ask, I, if you say, I need, uh, I need to only love my neighbor but hate my enemy, you haven't been paying attention. Now this is interesting too because you could say, where does it say in scripture to hate your enemy? Because usually when Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's referring to interpretation of scripture. I've been thinking, I thought a lot about that. And, you know, if you look at the Old Testament, there's a lot of love for people different than us, right? So in Leviticus, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself, just 20 verses or so later, maybe 10 verses or so later, it also says, love the alien among you, right? 
or Rick mentioned last time, God's love is extended to Rahab, who is a Canaanite, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, that um, um, that uh, Jonah, like kind of name for a second. <laughs> uh, Jonah is afraid to preach to Nineveh because he's afraid God will send his love on the Ninevites, right? Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament that God God's love is unbounded, right? But if you want to look for evidence of how you should hate your neighbor, I mean, hate your enemy, you can also find that, right? So Jesus is saying, yeah, okay, maybe we, I, well, this is my, okay, this is my take on it. Maybe there is some mixed evidence in our scriptures, but I'm telling you, you got to look at who God is, and God is merciful to all, so don't use the scripture as an excuse to hate your enemy. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what he's Alright, so um, so that's the prism that, that, that we've looked at. Um, this, this prism of love as, as how we live in relationship with God and how we imitate God in loving not only the people that are closest to us, but the people who are, are far from us. Okay, that brings us to the letters of Paul. Um, and so uh, in the letters of Paul, there's a lot on God's love. So Paul, unlike the synoptics, does use the word agape to describe God's love. And one of the ways he does this is he takes that agape toss, that belovedness of Jesus that we saw in the synoptics. Remember, Jesus is God's beloved son. And he extends that to the community. So we are now also God's beloved, like Jesus. Um, so, you know, so there's lots of passages, but I just gave a couple up here, you know, and a lot of times this is just as he's talking to them, he calls them, be- or writing to them, excuse me, he calls them beloved, right? Um, there you are, beloved, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord. Um, and here's the Father who loved us, and here we are uh, as beloved, right? So the community of followers of Jesus are beloved. So that's one way. Um, another way that he writes about God's love is that Jesus' life and what he chose to do in his life demonstrates God's love for us. And because of that, we can be assured of it. So uh, I, I, loved, I actually love this, um, this little set of verses here. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Um, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's rare that someone would die for their friend, right? Um, or for a righteous person, is actually what is said here. But God proves his, proves his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. This is how God loves his enemies. It's through Christ. Christ didn't die for us Gentiles, well, unless there's anyone in here who's not, <laughs> who's Jewish, but, <laughs> right, like, because Paul is writing to Gentiles, right, he's saying, you were at odds with God, you were not righteous, like, you were God's enemies, so to speak, God doesn't really have enemies, right, I'm, I'm using that language a little figuratively, right, but, but Christ died for you. That's how, you know, so I'm bringing this together now with the synoptics, right? That's how we know that how we, react, we relate to our enemies. So down, oh, whoops, 
down here in Ephesians is similar. Uh, we were dead to our trespasses, made alive in Christ. That is the great love with which God has loved us. So um, we can be absolute, because of these two, <laughs> we can be absolutely assured that nothing will be able to separate us from God's love. Like if anything could, we'd already done it as Gentiles. We turned away from God according to Paul, right? But if we look at what happens in Christ, we know we can be absolutely sure of God's love for us. So if there's anyone in this room who isn't sure, <laughs> read this a few times. <laughs> absolutely sure. And nothing can separate us. Um, and so that love fills us so that we live in love imitating both God and Christ. So in a way, what... It's like taking that idea from the synoptics that when we love, we imitate God's mercy, boundless mercy, now making and fleshing that in Jesus, right? That when we love, we imitate what we've seen up close and personal in the enfleshed Christ, like in our world. What does that look like? Um, and so the, 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 the death of Christ is a big part of this. Um, so... This, the reason that Christ died is that he loved us and gave himself for us. Um, the love of Christ uh, surpasses all knowledge. It fills us. And therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children to live in love as Christ loved us. So do you see that imitation? Right? So, so we got the imitation in the Synoptic Gospels that we're imitating God's mercy. Now, Paul is helping us see here that that mercy is embodied in Jesus and and that's what empowers us to love the way that God loves so I want to point out that this and Rick mentioned this passage um, yesterday that in, the, in Philippians we really see this uh, dramatically laid out in Philippians so if there is any consolation from love Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love. So he's talking to the community, and they're probably not getting along with each other. Is probably the context here. And he's saying, I want you to have the love, the mind, that Christ had. And what is that? He was in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and this, I, I have the ellipses there because I didn't quote the rest of it, but if you notice, it, this leads to his death on the cross, right? So what is Paul saying there? Um, Christ had the power and authority and privilege of the divine, but he didn't grasp that. What does that mean? And why would that take him to the cross? Well, when violence started to be started to come against Jesus, right, from the Romans. He chose not to fight them. The Romans are the enemies. He chose to love the enemy. You cannot fight back, at least if you're Jesus. This is not, we're not going to get into passages and all that, but Jesus, who has the power of God, is not going to fight back 
against his enemies. He's going to love them, which necessarily takes them to the cross. So this is how the cross is the ultimate demonstration that God loves enemies and God loves us. Um, so uh, so it's, I, I, I love this in Paul. It's, it's incredibly profound. Um, and, and this is also the ultimate demonstration that there are no boundaries. Right? If there was going to be one, the Romans would have crossed it. Right? So uh, there's this extravagant, borderless, unstoppable love for everyone. And that is what's demonstrated in Jesus. Um, and so I want to just mention, then Paul goes on, and he, so that's, that's God's love for us and, and Jesus' love for us. Then Paul goes on in a lot of his letters to talk about our love for others. Right? Huge topic. Can't, can't look at it today. Um, but I will just mention that in a couple of places, he reflects the same idea of love for neighbor as being at the heart of the ethical component of the law. But of course, for Paul, that is most demonstrated and visible in Jesus because of what Jesus did. OK, very quickly. John John's writing, which I'm going to do in like four minutes. Uh, so in the Gospel of John, there is this obviously this famous passage that everyone knows. God loves the world, so God gave his son. So notice in the Gospel of John, the word agape, God agape is all over the place <laughs> in the Gospel of John. Not in the synoptics, so there's just a different color there, right? But there is this um, kind of complex interrelationship between God, Jesus, the world, the disciples, and the community that's being formed out of love for Jesus. And uh, so I just kind of summarized it here. The Father loves the Son. Jesus loves the Father. As the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves his disciples. Jesus shows this love by dying for his friends. And so, if you love Jesus, you will obey his commands. And what are his commands? To love each other. <laughs> like, so do you see this kind of dance, this interrelationship of love in, in the Gospel of John? Um, and then here's an example passage. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. What's new about this is not the command to love each other. What's new is to do it the way Jesus did it. That incarnated love for love that we were just talking about in Paul. It's the, the color is a little different in John, but the idea is similar. Um, so by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's what makes the community of Christ distinctive. That was what distinguishes it from the rest of the world is this is, is love. Um, and then in the, in the Johannine letters, um, this gets uh, developed even a little further in the sense that, um, well, you have, this is an example of that same complex of love that I was just talking about. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So because God loves us through Jesus, we love others, right? That same complex of love. But a new thing in, or fairly new, in 1 John is 
that God is love. So this, of course, is very, we all, we, most of us will probably heard this, right? So it's almost like 1 John culminates this whole complex of love that we've been looking at in the Synoptic Gospels, in Paul's letters, you know, and kind of brings it all into to these, this short little pithy statement, God is love. Um, and, and if we abide in that love, and God abides in us, then we love others. Um, so that was a quick tour <laughs> of a love in the New Testament. And I want to conclude, because I was thinking about this, I was like, how do you kind of put this into a nutshell? And I don't know how, actually, how you put this into a nutshell. Um, but what I did is I ended up writing just a, a kind of wish prayer, sort of like, you know, may we live this way, may we do this, that, that I'm, is my attempt to put all this together. So I'm going to conclude by reading that. Um, uh, and so, may we welcome everyone into God's kingdom, which is the kingdom of the beloved Son, where we love God with fierce loyalty and love everyone, neighbors and enemies, as ourselves, because that is how God loved us. And we know this because Jesus embodied God's love so fully that he loved rather than conquered his enemies. And so the cross shows the vast expanse of God's love. And this same Jesus loves us, pouring love into us, so that as we abide in him, we form a community of love that serves each other as he served the world. And this extravagant community of love will wow the world, mm. pointing everyone to God, who is love. So, that was my time. Thank you for your attention. Yeah. <laughs> and have a